Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Horror Show. So we are still in New New Hampshire. Hampshire. New Hampshire. New Hampshire, yes, as I kept typing by accident. No offense, New Hampshire. It's just fat fingering and keyboard. So I know how much you love fun facts, Eden. I do love fun facts. I dug up some fun New Hampshire facts. Lay it on me. So its nickname is the Granite State. Mm-hmm. That's going to come into play in my story just a little bit. It's exciting. Spoiler alert. The state motto is live free or die. I knew that one. The state songs are Old New Hampshire and New Hampshire, My New Hampshire. Lots of New Hampshire. Good. No toe tappings for that tune. Some famous New Hampshireites you may have heard of include Robert Frost, the poet. Okay, like him. John Irving, the writer. Mm-hmm. I always think of prayer for Owen Meany. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Salmon P. Chase and Harlan F. Stone, who were Supreme Court justices. And Salmon P. Chase, I think I mentioned him in my Rhode Island story about Sprague Mansion. Oh, cool. His case dad. Uh, who else? Who else? Franklin Pierce, our beloved something-ish president. I want to say he was around like somewhere between 12th to 15th. Sure, I'll go with that. I don't know them that well in order. I used to know all of them in order. <laughs> but that was high school and we had a quiz on it. That's fair. That's Everyone fair. else around me was cheating, but off I wasn't you, and I, I still got 100. Nice. Uh, Alan Shepard, the astronaut. We just talk about um, space. Yep. Uh, Daniel Webster, the famous statesman. And that's about it. I'm sure there's other famous people from New Hampshire. Wasn't there like a story like the devil and Daniel, Daniel Webster? Webster? I think so. Yeah. I want to say that sounds like a Nathaniel Hawthorne story, but maybe not. I just think I read it in high school or something. Oh, oh no. It was a story. The Devil and Daniel Webster it was a short story by Stephen Vincent Benet. Okay. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. And the story does center on a New Hampshire farmer who sells his soul to the devil yep. and is defended by Daniel Webster, a fictional version of the famous 19th century American statesman, lawyer, and orator. Oh, and he was on Sabrina, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina then. he. Um... Oh, that's right. He defended. Yeah. Yeah. No spoilers. Just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully you've seen it already. I know. Get on top of it. Any hootie. Any hootie. Any hootie. I normally say any hooters. Any hooters. (laughs) Any hooters will do in a pinch. I just need some chicken wings. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Anyhow, I I guess uh, that's New Hampshire in a nutshell. Just kidding. It's not. It's just some fun facts. Just fun facts. Uh, I have a delightful, well, maybe not so delightful. I always hate that. I always say, I have a delightful true crime story. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't mean delightful. I mean interesting well it's kind of like and everyone on game shows is like and i would like to um just say hello to my my wonderful husband and my wonderful children they're always wonderful they're never just okay or horrible or anything (laughs) to my shitty kids and my okay looking wife exactly yeah (laughs) the bitch i'm divorcing uh i hope your dog dies like whoa (gasps) so my true crime story for today our first stop today is on somebody knows island I love that name. Smutty Nose. When I before I researched the story, the only thing I knew about Smutty Nose was the beer company. And they actually Oh yeah, they yeah. do have beer. Yeah, they're from New Hampshire. They're from Portsmouth. And they actually are named after this island. Wasn't your last one Portsmouth too? Uh yes, that is where the hills live in Portsmouth. Okay. So Smutty Nose Island is about ten miles offshore from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it's part of a collection of islands called the Isles of the Shoals. And this island group actually straddles the border between New Hampshire and Maine. So some of the some of the islands are considered part of New Hampshire. Other ones are considered part of Maine. Smutty Nose is actually considered part of Maine. But for the purposes of my story, a majority of the activity takes place in Portsmouth and on the island. The Isles of the Shoal were used as seasonal fishing locations for Native Americans and were settled by the Europeans in the 17th century. Fishing has been the primary industry on the Isles for as long as anyone can remember. And though there are several islands within the group, the population has always remained pretty small. Okay. Uh, Smutty Nose is the third largest island and is connected to a nearby smaller island called Malanga Island by a water break. So like those... Man-made little, like, causeways. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Today, there are only two houses on the island, and there are no longer any residents. Oh, okay. However, that was not the case in the 1870s, which is when our story takes place. All right, tell me more. By 1870, John and Marin Hundvitz lived on Smutty Nose Island. The couple had arrived from Norway a few years earlier and had set themselves up to make a living from John's fishing schooner, the Clarabella. While Marin spent her days maintaining the small red house on Smutty Nose Island with her beloved dog, dog Ringy, John would leave the island before dawn and pull in his trawl lines. Then he'd take the fish he pulled in to market in Portsmouth and buy more bait. On his way back to the island, he'd reset his trawl lines and return home by the late afternoon. And so their life on Smutty Nose was peaceful and productive. According to one of my sources, John was a very industrious person, and that industriousness earned him the respect from his friends and neighbors among the other islands of the Shoal, whose number rarely reached above 50 people. So there were neighbors, but they were pretty well isolated, even though they were only about 10 miles offshore from Portsmouth. While the Hovitz fishing business grew, they were pretty lonely on Smutty Nose Island, and they missed their families back home in Norway terribly. Then, in the spring of 1871, Marin's younger sister, Karen Christensen. Marin, Karen. Marin and Karen. It's like a bad joke in there somewhere. It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, in spring of 1871, Karen Christensen, Marin's younger sister, joined them on the island. So Karen was recovering from a pretty bad breakup, and it was part of the reason she wanted to get away from Norway so she kind of get over losing her lover. Uh, when she moves to the island with John and Marin, she eventually becomes a live-in maid on nearby Appledore Island, which is the largest island in the Shoals. They have interesting names over here. Yes, they do. They do. They kind of named the islands whatever the heck they wanted to. <laughs> I still really love Smutty Nose. I'm, that's just like my favorite name ever. <laughs> well, I guess one of the uh, one of the sources I had found a origin for the name i i know i used to know the origin of the name and i don't remember just because i was fascinated with the name i guess uh fishermen thought that the shape of the island because at one end of the island accumulates a lot of seaweed yeah it looked like a like sea creature like a seal or something with like seaweed on its nose like a little smutty nose I'm yeah like, that's right smutty nose. <laughs> so karen well, initially she lives on Smutty Nose. She eventually gets hired as a maid. She moves to the island next door, which is like basically only like a quarter mile away from where Marin and John are. Okay. So still not far. Yeah. So she can visit when she wants to, things like that. Come for like family, you know, Sunday supper if she wants. Uh, in the summer of 1872, so about a year later, John's business is booming and he needs to hire some help to keep up with all the trawl lines that he's pulling in. So he hires Lewis Wagner. Louis Wagner was a German immigrant with a very thick Prussian accent, dark hair, and a very thick, dark mustache. Wagner was also an independent fisherman, and he pretty much fished near the smaller islands of the Shoals, uh, including the islands that neighbored Smutty Nose. Uh, so the Hovitz were familiar with him, seeing him around, you know, chatting at sea. But unlike John, Wagner could barely eke out a living from his fishing. Okay. So the Hovitz offered the down-on-his-luck Wagner room and board ex in exchange for working with John on the Clarabella. One of my sources mentioned that Wagner wasn't exactly thrilled about not having any monetary pay, but he was in need of a stable living situation, so he accepted the Hovitz offer pretty happily. Uh, in late 1872, so about six or seven months after John hired on Louis Wagner, more of the Hovitz families come to join them from Norway. John's brother, Matthew, and Marin's younger brother, Ivan Christensen, arrive on Smutty Nose to help with the fishing schooner. Ivan also brings his beautiful new young bride, Anethe. Wagner remains with the Hovitz for several more weeks, but eventually he's able to find paying work on another fishing schooner. He leaves Smutty Nose Island on good terms with the Hovitz, who had helped him get back on his feet. Then... As the months pass, the Hovitz and Christiansons continue to cr prosper on Smutty Nose Island. Their fishing business booms, and the Hovitz are happy to have their relations living with them on the island. Meanwhile, Louis Wagner is plagued by misfortune yet again. The new schooner where he got a job gets wrecked, and he's unemployed. He's forced to work as a day laborer on the Portsmouth Wharfs. He barely has enough money to pay for food, 
and his boarding house. By March of 1873, Wagner is broke and he owes three weeks of back rent at his boarding house. On the morning of March 5th, 1873, John, Matthew, and Ivan set sail from Smutty Nose. They follow their usual plan for how they fish, which is to go pull in their catch from their trawl lines. And their trawl lines are basically the lines they use to catch fish, the things they bait and throw into the water. Then they sail back to Smutty Nose to drop off one of the men on the island. Then from Smutty Nose, they head towards Portsmouth to sell their catch and buy more bait. They leave Portsmouth, rebate the trawl lines, lay them into the sea again, and then return home. Okay. However, on this day, the winds were more favorable for the men to sail directly to Portsmouth rather than sailing against the wind to go back to Smutty Nose to drop off one of the men. Decision made, they were going to head right to Portsmouth. They see a neighbor at sea, and they ask him to relay their plan to the women and to let the women know that they'd be home later that evening. Okay. When the Hovitz women on Smutty Nose receive the message in the late afternoon, they decide to start preparing supper for when the guys get back. Marin and Anethe had extra help that evening because Karen had decided to visit her family. She had recently left her job as a maid and was preparing to move to Boston to take a job as a seamstress. But before she left, she wanted to spend some more time before saying goodbye. More time with them before saying goodbye. I have a feeling this is not going to go anywhere good. It is not. Probably because I already know this is true crime that's happening. (laughs) So, you know. When John Dock's the Clarabella in Portsmouth, he encounters Lewis Wagner at the wharf because Lewis is now there as a day worker. During their conversation, Wagner asks the men if they're returning to the island that evening or staying overnight in Portsmouth. While John and the other men thought his question was a little bit odd, they tell Wagner that it really depends on when the train that's carrying the bait arrives from Boston. If the train's on schedule, they'll get their bait and return home that evening. If the train's late, they'll stay in Portsmouth, bait their trawl lines overnight, and then return home in the morning. John, knowing that Wagner was... But what about dinner? I mean, they're in, they're in town. They can stop by a tavern. Well, yes, but the wives don't know that. Now they just made dinner. Well, I'm sure they have enough sense to be like, well, I guess the boys are coming home tonight. Let's put this dinner away. And Do they, they have, have a way leftovers. to store leftovers back then? I mean, I guess there's ice boxes and stuff. And it was it was March in New Hampshire, so it was pretty cold you out. You can just set it outside. It'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe put it in a box so seagulls and seals don't get it. I don't That's know. That's probably true. So... John knows that Wagner's down on his luck and he offers him some pay if Wagner comes back later that night to help the guys bait the trawl lines. Wagner agrees and then he leaves to go run errands. It turns out that part of Wagner's errands were to visit the train station to find out when the Boston train arrives and then to also concoct a nefarious plan. Ooh, nefarious. Nefarious. He knew that John Hovitz had been saving money to upgrade his schooner or possibly buy another schooner to help grow his fishing business now that his brother and brother-in-law were living with them. With all the island's men in Portsmouth, Wagner figured he could go out to Smutty Nose and with the knowledge he had gained while living with the Hovitz, sneak unseen into the house and steal John's savings. When Wagner learns that the train is indeed late and that the men would be staying overnight in Portsmouth, he sets his plan into motion. Sometime after 7.30 p.m., he stole a dory and begins to row out to Smutty Nose Island. I did not know what the heck a dory was. I'm just thinking um, Finding Nemo. Yeah, I know, Ellen's exactly. Generous. That was the first uh, description was the fish dory. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the second de- definition, however, is basically it's like a it's like a rowboat for fishing. It has a high bow and stern but a flat bottom. Okay. So it's, it's, it's like you can take it out in the sea to some extent. But it's basically a rowboat. I know nothing about fishing, so... Nor do I. So, Wagner steals the story, and he starts rowing out to Smutty Nose Island. He lands the dory in a cove on the other side of the island from where the Clarabella schooner docks, and then watches the Hovitz small red house for several hours from a hiding place on the rocky shore. Meanwhile, around 10 p.m., the Hovitz women decide to retire for the evening. Rather than putting Karen in the chilly upstairs bedrooms of the house... Marin sets up a cot for her sister in the kitchen and then went to bed with Anathi in an adjoining downstairs bedroom. So basically it was like a door off the kitchen was an extra downstairs bedroom. Now, a brief warning for our more sensitive listeners. You may want to skip the next bit because it will be pretty violent and graphic. Although, you know, you know what you're getting into. This is why you listen to this podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> Eden's words, not mine. <laughs> Sometime between 1 a.m. and 2 p.m., Wagner trudges through the snow-covered ground to the house. He tries the kitchen door and finds that it's not bolted. Slipping quietly inside, he went to the bedroom of the door where Marin and Anathe were sleeping and jammed a bit of wood into the latch. Wagner's hoping that he can get in and out of the house without being seen, but he makes a small noise that startles Ringy, Marin's beloved dog. Ringy starts to bark, which awoke Karen from her cot in the kitchen. Karen sleepily calls out, John, is that you? This also wakes up Marin in the bedroom, who heard the barking and her sister's call. Marin calls out to her sister and asks if anything is wrong. Karen replies, John scared me, and she begins to wake up more fully. Louis Wagner panics at being discovered. He grabs the nearest kitchen chair and swings it at Karen. Oh, shit. He continues to beat her as she oh. screams and tries to scramble away. Marin races to the door, only to discover that it's been jammed shut. As Wagner continues to beat her, Karen is thrown against the bedroom door. The force of her body hitting the door dislodges the wood jammed in the latch, and Marin's finally able to open the door. Somehow, Marin manages to drag her sister into the room and then slam and bolt the door. Good. She tries to grab furniture to barricade the bedroom door as well. Her young sister-in-law, Nethe, is huddled in the corner, absolutely terrified. As Wagner continues to throw himself against the door to try to force his way into the bedroom, Marin realizes the only escape that the women have is through the bedroom windows. Luckily, they're on the ground floor. She shouts at Anethe to climb out the window and run and find a hiding place. Anethe, in her nightclothes, climbs out the window and falls into the snow. As she climbs to her feet, she freezes in terror. Marin shouts for her to run, only to realize that the pounding on the bedroom door is stopped. Wagner has left the kitchen and decided to go around the side of the house to the bedroom windows. Suddenly, Anethe starts to scream, Louis, Louis, and stumbles as the moonlight shows the intruder's true identity. As Wagner runs towards her, he passes the wood pile. He pauses to grab the long-handled axe laying near the pile. As Marin watches in horror from the window, Wagner races towards Anethe and swings down the axe. The axe lands deeply in Anethe's skull and the young woman crumples to the ground. As Wagner dislodges the axe and raises it again, Marin rushes from the window. She knew Anethe was beyond help, but she could still help her sister. Karen was badly beaten and barely conscious. Marin tries to drag her sister to the window as Wagner begins to chop through the bedroom door with the axe. Marin quickly dresses herself in a warm skirt and jumps out the window with her dog, Ringy. She turns back to help Karen climb through the window when Wagner bursts through the door and runs at the window. Falling back into the bloody snow, Marin scrambles away as Wagner brings the axe down on Karen. Oh, shit. Okay. See, when you said that he was like, trying to like break down the door with the axe all i was imagining was here's johnny i know right terrifying uh wagner hits karen with his first blow but then he swings wildly and strikes the windowsill breaking the axe off its handle Marin rises to her feet grabs ringy and runs into the darkness behind her she can hear her sister's final agonizing moments as wagner wraps a scarf around karen's throat and strangles her to death Marin runs to the dock expecting to find the boat that wagner used to get to the island planning to use it as a way to get off the island into safety. When she doesn't see it, she panics and tries to think of some place to hide on the island. There was the chicken coop, the cellar of a couple other vacant buildings nearby, but it all seemed too obvious. Okay. Marin runs along the shore on the far side of the island and then finally spots a gap between two large rocks at the water's edge. She slips between the rocks, holding her dog close for warmth. To this day, that- A dog better not bark. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, to this day, that rock is now no is known as Marin's Rock. Oh, okay. Wagner frantically begins to search the island. He has to take care of this eyewitness to his crime. He checks all the buildings on the island, leaving a trail of bloody boot prints in the snow. As dawn approaches, he realizes he has to go up his search if he wants to escape the island unseen. He drags Anethe's body into the kitchen of the house and then ransacks it. He discovers, in the end, that John only had $15 stashed away. So he did all this for $15. For $15, yep. Returning to his dory, he rows back to Portsmouth, stops by his boarding house to grab his belongings. Then Lewis Wagner boards the 9 a.m. train to Boston. Yeah. Sorry, no, midnight train to Georgia just flashed in my head. <laughs> so I'm like trying not to sing it, but I'm kind of bopping back and forth. Back on Smutty Nose Island, Marin hid until nearly 8 a.m. in freezing temperatures. She climbs up from her hiding space 
and races across the breakwater to Malanga Island, where she's able to get the attention of neighbors on Appledore Island, because again, it's only about a quarter mile away. Her neighbor gets into a dory and rows across to rescue her. Then he gathers a group of men from Appledore Island. The group arms themselves with guns and sets out to search Smutty Nose for any intruders. Wait, and they've seen now that it is, um, who was it? Wagner? Well, Marin, see, Marin saw that it was Wagner. Marin, okay, and Marin's still alive? Marin's still alive. Okay. She she, is, she hid till basically 8 a.m. With then, the dog. Yeah, with her dog. And then she ran across the island to alert neighbors, and they came and got her. But Karen is dead? Karen's dead. And so is... An um, essay, yeah. yeah. Okay. So her neighbors from Appledore arm themselves with guns, and they go to Smutty Nose, and they search for the intruder. He's not there. All they find is the grizzly seen at the Hobbit's house. I'm imagining townsfolk with pitchforks and torches. Right? Like, <laughs> like, how dare you? And you figure it's a pretty isolated place, the Shoals. And like, yeah. the only people you have to rely on in an emergency are your neighbors. So That's true. I can see the islanders being very um, protective of each other. The Clarabella reaches the islands of the Shoals later that morning. After seeing signals from Appledore Island, they turn to dock there. Uh, the men find the Strat Marin and learn of the terrible incidents that happened overnight to their family. The authorities are alerted by the next day, and they police in Portsmouth telegraph Lewis Wagner's description to police stations up and down the New England coast. Meanwhile, Wagner has arrived in Boston, where he used to live. Okay, well, he definitely, you know, ran and ran and ran. And ran and ran and ran. Uh, He purchases a new suit and shaves his mustache in an attempt to change his appearance. He then heads to the north end of Boston, which is the neighborhood that he lived in and was most familiar with. Within a few days, the police locate and arrest Wagner. He offers no resistance and doesn't ask why he was being arrested. Because he was just like, okay, the jig is up, I guess. Yeah, he's like, they got me. <laughs> he's taken back to Portsmouth, where he is met by an angry crowd of 500 people. <laughs> As he should be. Yes. This crowd wanted blood. They try to break through the police escort so that they can execute Wagner immediately via hanging, the police are finally able to disperse the crowd. A few days later, Wagner gets transferred from the jail in Portsmouth to a jail in Alfred, Maine for trial. While Smutty Nose, as I mentioned before, it's physically closer to New Hampshire, it's technically part of the island of the Shoals that are owned by Maine. So Wagner technically committed his crime in Maine. Okay. When the news of Wagner's transfer to Maine is circulated around Portsmouth, Again, a large, angry mob gathers outside the jail, clamoring for Wagner's head. The police were so outnumbered that they had to call in bayonet-wielding Marines from a nearby naval base just to manage crowd control. Those are my favorite kind of Marines. Mm -hmm, The pokey kind. (laughs) Even with the Marines' help, the crowd were still pretty unruly, and they threw rocks at Wagner and the escorts, the police escorts, as they left the jail. And they barely get him, like, onto a ship and over to Maine. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, people are pissed. Major vigilante justice. Yes. Yes. They want his blood. So Lewis Wagner's trial, actually, it's probably for the best that he was tried in Maine, a little bit removed from that. From, yeah. Yeah. So Lewis Wagner's trial started on June 9th, 1873. The evidence against Wagner was pretty compelling. There was his sudden flight to Boston, the new suit that he bought when he reached Boston, which cost exactly $15. Oh, the $15 that he could have Mm -hmm. stolen. The attempt to change his appearance by shaving his mustache and changing his hair. And most damning, the bloody boot prints that were in the snow on Smutty Nose Island were an exact match to the same size of boots that Wagner wore. He's screwed. Mm -hmm. And it gets worse because there's a lot of damning witness testimony. Aside from Marin, who gives very chilling testimony about what she witnessed that night in March, there are several witnesses from Portsmouth who confirm that Wagner was destitute. One witness reported even hearing him say that he would murder for money if it was enough money. And another witness said that the last time he saw Wagner was at 7 p.m. on the evening of March 5th, and he wasn't seen anywhere else in Portsmouth that night, despite his claims to have spent the evening at a tavern where he got drunk and then fell asleep outside. Oh, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wagner was vehemently professing his innocence the whole time, so much so that people even questioned it for a moment, and then they looked at the evidence and heard from witnesses. He offered lots of evidence that he didn't do it. 
He said that there is this mysterious schooner that was spotted off the coast of Smutty Nose on the evening of March 5th, but he could produce no other witnesses to confirm his statement. The shot came from the grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. He also put forth the alternative theory of the crime that Marin was the real killer. Oh, God. Okay. Now, Marin was a smaller woman, pretty slight of slight build, and by all accounts, she had a very gentle nature. However, Wagner suggested that she was jealous of her sister and sister-in-law and was attempting to pin her crimes on him as a scapegoat. I'm assuming that didn't go over quite so well in court. No. Despite all of his attempts to convince people he was innocent, they failed. And after nine trial days and 55 minutes of deliberation, Louis Wagner was sentenced to hang. Hooray! Yep. Desperate to avoid his death sentence, Wagner breaks out of jail within the week and is quickly recaptured in New Hampshire. He's taken back to Maine, and he is hanged on June 25th, 1875 in Thomaston, Maine. As for the Hobbits, they left Smutty Nose Island and moved to Portsmouth. I would definitely get off that island, yeah, too. They got I the heck out. memories. John continued his fishing business. Uh, however... Poor Ivan Christensen was absolutely devastated by the loss of his beloved young wife, Anethe. He spent the summer on Appledore Island within view of the Hovitz house where he worked for some families on the island doing, you know, handyman stuff. Yeah. Uh, eventually, he returned to Norway and was never heard from again. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So he was pretty much devastated. Like I a lot of... was okay. No. A lot of the accounts I read, like he, when he saw his wife's body, he just like broke down. Oh shit! Like they, they had only been married about a year or so, oh. and they were both pretty young. I think he was twenty five; she was about that age too. So, um, which it, I mean, back then that was probably like you're an old maid, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, so terrible, terrible thing. Um, and this is one of those really oddly notorious crimes. Yeah, that comes up a lot. So, Eden, what do you think? I had never heard of it before, so I was very intrigued. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. Yeah, I don't think I ever heard it before. And, of course, I love Smutty Nose Island just because of the name. <laughs> um, it was very interesting. I liked it. Um, I thought that the the Karen and Marin thing was very confusing. <laughs> it was. Because um, I was like, wait, which one? Karen, Marin, Darren, or Sharon? I really don't know at this point. Um, <laughs> was it yeah. Jay? It was Jay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, I'm happy that he got what he deserved in the end and didn't actually end up, you know, getting far when he ran away Mm -hmm. or else I would have been very disappointed. I thought it was super interesting to have that eyewitness. It's like, there's so much information from the trial about what actually happened because Marin saw it all. Saw everything. And like had the, you know, strength to actually testify to it in court, which is really impressive. And I'm also very happy the dog lived. Yes, Ringy. That was like one of those things. I was like, oh, no. It's like, don't hurt the dog. And then it's like, she grabs her dog and runs. I'm like, good for you, girl. Do what you want with the people. Just leave the dog alone. Well, a, a lot of a lot of things were like, she realized, like, uh, if I don't run now, I'm not going to survive. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's awful. Absolutely awful. Um, the interesting thing, side note about this, is that there were rumors that on Marin's deathbed, she had confessed to the murders. And I guess it was picked up by some like newspapers in Portsmouth. And then it comes out that, no, she's actually still alive and well. And this is all bunk. Oh, wow. But that rumor has persisted to this day. So much so that there's actually uh, a pretty interesting book about these Smutty Nose murders. It's like a fictionalized account of that alternate theory that Marin is actually the murderer. Okay. It's called The Weight of Water. Uh, it was also a movie. I remember the movie because it stars Elizabeth Hurley. Okay. And uh, Sarah Polly plays Marin. I know that name like, again, but. Great Canadian actress. She was in uh, Avonlea. She was in the movie Go. Avonlea sounds familiar. Go, I've seen, but only ever on TV. Oh, she's great. She's great. But yeah, she plays Marin. And the whole, the whole plot of the novel is it's like a time jump. It's about like Elizabeth Hurley's character is like a journalist who comes to the island to write about the murders and she supposedly uncovers like this journal that Marin kept and it kind oh. of jumps back and forth between her time on the island, the journalist's time on the island. She's with like her husband and her brother and his young wife. Yeah. And she starts getting jealous of his, of her husband's attention towards like her new sister-in-law. And then it jumps back to 
what happened with the hobbits again it's really fictionalized but yeah. it was it was a good book it was very interesting i mean it does make for an interesting story definitely yeah but it's totally fictionalized yeah um so well, my thank you for that that was really good yeah i'm glad you liked it i was pretty excited when i found it and i had no idea that you had such delight in the name smutty nose <laughs> yeah i love smutty nose <laughs> <laughs> uh my resources for this week uh were uh, wikipedia murder by gaslight.com new england today seacoastnh.com and smuttynosemurders.com okay yeah smuttynosemurders.com yeah how cool. many murders have there been in smutty nose if that's like a whole website it's about this uh, it's actually a website of this researcher who wrote like a really intense book about the murderers um and it had some really cool pages about the alternate theories okay. that were put forth and like why they happened. So that's where I found out about like the supposed deathbed confession hoax. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was like, oh, okay. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. But that's my story. I think it's time for us to uh, roll in for a break. Absolutely. And we will see y'all when we get back. And we are back. Hi, everybody. I have a cat on my lap and a story to tell you. Sounds like perfection. What do you think, Salem? You going to purr at me while I do this story? Probably. Well, guys, I'm beginning to think that there's nothing more to New Hampshire than trees and mountains because last week's story mostly took place in a state park. And my story for this week takes place near the White Mountain National Forest. At this point, I'm just imagining directions in New Hampshire to go something like this. So you're going to follow the road for about 20 to 21 trees, and you'll see a mountain <laughs> in the distance. Turn left and go for about 85 more trees, and it's on their left by some more trees. I told you about getting lost in New Hampshire, right? Oh, you did, yeah. <laughs> it's like, is that a covered bridge? I'm sure that's on the other side is where we'll find our destination. <laughs> <gasps> just trees. <laughs> just trees. Uh, this story takes place in the town with the weirdest name that I could find. Heart's location. Yeah. Like heart, like H-A-R-T or? H-A-R-T, yeah. Okay, good. But I'm just like directions to heart's location. You're going to go down from the brain, past the orbital sockets, and past the <laughs> cervical vertebrae. Yeah, like <laughs> it just sounds like really weird. But yeah, in their defense, it is spelled H-A-R-T. So this place is super small with only 18.6 square miles and only 40 people living in there um, as of the 2010 census. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really small. This town is crossed by the Appalachian Trail and is home to Crawford Notch State Park. Another notch. Another notch. So this is the story of the Notchland Inn. Okay. I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit about the inn. It's been in operation since the 1920s, and it's on the property of what was the Mount Crawford House, which I could find exactly zero information on no matter how hard I searched. But I think that they had maybe meant the Mount Crawford Tavern. I will tell you a bit about the Crawford family and Abel Crawford a little later, as well as the Crawford House, which is, from what I found, a different house than the Mount Crawford House. Okay. So there was a tavern on the property that is now the dining room of the hotel. There's a parlor, which is communal space with activities like board games and I guess a group puzzle. They called it Puzzle in Progress on their website. So I'm assuming it's like, <laughs> you do a piece, I do a piece. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Um, there's also a beautiful music room with a piano and you can pick whatever music you want to listen to. They also do Scrabble in that room. Cool. So this is very like game heavy. I like it. There's a sunroom with beautiful views of the mountains and um, the Saco River. I watched two videos so I would know how to pronounce that river. And both videos said it differently. One said Saco, the other said Saco. So I'm still not entirely sure. I'm just as confused as I was when I started. There's also a library where you can borrow a book if you want to read. So that's good too. I I'm into that. Yeah. Across the road from the inn, there's a hiking trail leading up to a connecting trail through Mount Washington. Okay. This place looks really beautiful from the pictures on the website, and there are literally a ton of things to do here. I saw something on their website about a murder mystery train ride. What? Yeah, which sounds like that the best super, thing in the world. Yes, that seems super cool. 
They also have Ghost Tours, which is a duh because this is a paranormal story for the week. <laughs> um, ghosts and murder mysteries. We have found our people and we need to stay here. I Okay. I understand that text message you sent where like, we're going to North <laughs> New Hampshire right now. Get in the car. Yeah. Because, I'm, like, All right. I'm sorry, murder mystery train ride. Yes. <sighs> that sounds so cool. Um. Now I'm going to give some history of the Crawford family, who were the first settlers in the area now known as Crawford Notch, which was originally called White Mountain Notch, and they were responsible for trails and turnpikes in the area, leading settlers safely through the mountains and providing them with food and shelter. And they also just did a lot of uh, things in general for the settlers. They first settled in New Hampshire in the 1790s from... Guildhall, Vermont. They were of Irish heritage and originally settled in Boston. When they first came to the area, it was pretty much like nothing but vast wilderness that seemed kind of uninhabitable, but somehow they made do. That's cool. Basically, what this family is known for is building trails through the mountains and for the development of the land, which led to the area eventually becoming a bit of a tourist attraction. They made a lot of roads, such as Cherry Mountain Road, the 10th New Hampshire Turnpike, the Littleton Turnpike, and the Jefferson Turnpike. So I guess if you see a turnpike anywhere in New Hampshire, it's safe to assume it's their doing. <laughs> I don't even know there were so many turnpikes in New Hampshire. I guess. Because I think we only have one, right, in Pennsylvania. Well, it's a state turnpike, but... Yeah. I mean, sometimes turnpikes are also like, you know, toll roads. That's true. Okay, I guess I see what you're saying there. Anyway... Abel Crawford, the first of the Crawfords in the area, became known as the Patriarch of the Hills. And also in 1840, when he was 75, he rode the first horse that climbed the cone of Mount Washington. Dang, that's like a freaking hearty senior citizen. I know, right? He ended up dying in that same year, sadly, and is actually buried in the cemetery right outside the Notchland Inn. I will have plenty to tell you about that cemetery in a little bit i'm glad you said the cemetery because like did they bury him at the top of the mountain and no <laughs> is that where no. he died because imagine that hike to visit your dead loved one <laughs> the other members of the family and i apologize in advance if i say some of these names wrong but uh were Eleazar rosebrook who was their stepfather and then there was abel's two sons who have easy to pronounce names ethan allen crawford and tom crawford wow Ethan Allen Crawford's the most New Englandish name I've ever heard. It just makes me think of the the furniture. Oh, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Uh, they are responsible for a few buildings around the area, such as Notch House, which was built in 1828. They also built three taverns, the aforementioned and apparently non-existent other than two sources with no info, Mount Crawford House, <laughs> um, which in this source, whitemountainhistory.org, says it's in a place called Bemis Station. So not Hart's location. I don't know if they're cl close or not close or where it is, yeah. but um, they also built a few other places as well. The closest thing I could find to Mount Crawford House was Crawford House, which was built only partially by the family because Tom Crawford made some poor financial decisions and was forced to sell it to a man named Ebenezer Eastman. This seemed to be a thing with this family because Ethan was actually jailed for debt at some point too. <laughs> So they didn't make very good financial choices. Anyway, making my way down this rabbit hole led me to something weird about this place that I wanted to touch upon quickly. It burnt down three times. Wow. Yeah. I didn't find what caused the fires, but I thought that was amusing. That just like, let's build it again. Oh, now it burnt down again. Okay, one more time. Okay, now we're done. That's it. No more candles. Yeah, exactly. Like, what is going on? Um. The great thing about following rabbit holes while doing notes, you manage to find what you were actually looking for in the first place, which is what the Notchland Inn originally was. Finally, I found it after a thousand words that I decided to keep since it went with the history of the area. <laughs> the Notchland Inn was apparently the home of Dr. Samuel Bemis. So I'm assuming that... Like Bemis Station? Yeah, I'm assuming Bemis Station is close then since that was okay. the name. So Dr. Samuel Bemis who owned nearly 6,000 acres in Hart's location. Wow. And with the town being that small, it seems like it's the whole damn thing. Yeah. Um, it's a mansion that is made of granite, which he built himself, and the granite was quarried on the land that he owned. So there's our granite connection. I would hope so in the granite state. Yeah. I mean, I, if that's the state for it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, he was also from Vermont. 
So it seems like a lot of people from Vermont ended up moving over to New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, you know. He was born to unwed parents, which I'm sure at the time was like the biggest scandal that the world had ever known. But his dad, who was also named Samuel, was married and divorced three times before that. So maybe he just learned his lesson about marriage by that point. (laughs) Uh, Samuel actually ended up owning the Mount Crawford Tavern, which makes sense since it's the inn's dining room. Mm -hmm. He was a farmer. He made watches and clocks, which is a skill he learned from his dad. He also is the namesake for Mount Bemis. He owned a sawmill. He was definitely another Renaissance man, an overachiever, like we like to discuss on this podcast. Uh, his apples on his farm actually won awards. Oh. I wish I could have tasted one, but he's been dead since 1881, so that dream will never come true for me. <laughs> Sorry about it. Yeah, right? He was also a dentist who made a quote-unquote painless tooth extractor. Notice the quotes that I used because I really don't think that it was probably all that painless since this was the 1800s. Sounds like really good marketing, though. Yeah, it does. Uh, He was also one of the earliest photographers in the country, and some of his daguerreotypes are still around today. That's cool. Uh, Daguerreotypes are the earliest forms of publicly available photographic process and were made by a Frenchman named Louis Daguerre. I only know about him because of a video game I played called Life is Strange. <laughs> um, I don't want to go into detail about the Daguerrean process because it's a lot to explain. But let's just say it was a lot quicker than previous methods. Uh, he moved into the house on Christmas Eve of 1870. And even after finding what I wanted finally, I still couldn't find much about the house except that it's made entirely of granite, including the basement posts. Really? Yeah. That house won't burn down. Nope. Hopefully. (laughs) You never know. I mean, the last one burnt down three times, so anything's possible. He is also buried on the property cemetery. Now we will get into what led me to want to cover this story because I had a few to choose between. So thank you, New Hampshire, for having so many great haunted places. In the cemetery, there's this gravestone that says, quote, 1778, Nancy Barton. Died in a snowstorm in pursuit of her faithless lover, end quote. Whoa. Yeah. That really drew me in and made me say, tell me more. So, Nancy, what's the tea? Yes. So now I will tell you more. The story goes that Nancy was a 16-year-old servant for Colonel Joseph Whipple in Jefferson. She fell in love with a young farmer who was also in the colonel's employ, and entrusted her entire life savings to him, I'm assuming as like a dowry. Mm-hmm. Um, they were engaged to be married, but he ran off with her money before they could be wed. She followed a trail for 30 miles in the freezing cold to try to find him before she couldn't go any further, and it's said that she was found frozen to death by a river with her head in her hands. Her lover, upon hearing this, went insane and died not long after her. Ugh. People seem to really love Nancy in this area because several things are named after her, such as Nancy Brook, Nancy Pond, and Nancy Mountain. Nancy Mountain. Mm-hmm. Like I said, New Hampshire is nothing but trees and mountains, and apparently <laughs> water. Um, if you're not fishing, you're climbing a mountain. Climbing a mountain. <laughs> yeah, or possibly building stuff out of wood with all the trees. Um, okay, this story is actually pretty well documented, too. Oh, really? Yeah, in local history. So it's not just some campfire story to scare children into sticking with their betrothed. Well, that's really cool, but sad. Yeah, I know. Very sad, but very interesting. Mm-hmm. 30 miles is, like, impressive, too. That's a long way to go, especially, like, up and down a mountain, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this place has its fair share of activity, Uh, It's said that at the spot where Nancy froze to death, hikers and campers have reported the sound of moaning coming from the area with another website saying that people heard, quote, long shuddering groans mingled with despairing cries and gibbering laughter, end quote. Like almost like crazy. Like going nuts. Insanity. Yeah. It's also said that the ghost of her lover can be seen around the property or near where she died. I couldn't figure out which one with how it was written, but one of those. There's also a bunch of writing that appears randomly and then disappears. What? There was a couple that took a nap. And when they woke up, the name Abigail was written in steam on the bathroom mirror, even though no one had used the bathroom for hours at that point. What the 
Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Another couple who stayed at the inn many times before that noticed something similar. The husband woke up after taking a nap and noticed fresh flowers in the room. He then went to the bathroom and in lipstick on the bathroom mirror was written happy anniversary. When he went back into the bedroom, the flowers were gone. So then he checked the mirror again and that writing was gone too. So don't take a nap if you stay at the Notchland Inn if you're not looking for paranormal activity. But if you are, take a nap and that's apparently what activates it. Wow, that's... mm. Yeah, weird. Uh, There haven't been any negative energies in this inn and most people who stay there just say that they can feel a presence around them generally. Okay. Uh, Would you be willing to stay here with me, Nicole? It seems fun. We could do the murder mystery train ride and go on the ghost tour. And the cabins are pet friendly. (gasps) And I heard they have good food as well. Plus, the ghosts are of the friendly variety. I mean, we can stay there, but no naps. No naps. No naps ever. Mm -mm. All right. I got you. You'll drink lots of your Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And now that you got me addicted to a Starbucks drink. All part of my evil plan. Yes. I had the peppermint mocha today and it was wonderful. (laughs) There were two other stories that I was interested in doing this week, one of which was the Oceanborn Mary House. Oh, I looked at that too. Yeah. Um, it had to do with a pirate and buried treasure and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really fun. But then I'd have to do a pirate voice the entire time. I don't know <laughs> if I could keep that up for that long. I, I did. Did you did you research that any further? A little bit. Like the ghost of Mary is now said to be like a protective spirit of the house. Yeah. I, I dug a little deeper because I was actually going to cover that. Yeah. For, for my haunting story um, before I found the hill incident. And turns out not so much. Oh, really? She actually didn't live at that house. It was one of her son's houses. And like, oh. and like her fictionalized uh, account of like being like a pirate kid. Yeah, or something because like he fa- they he found her or something like. Well, I guess the story goes where it was like she her mother had the baby had Mary aboard a ship as they were coming from yeah. Europe, and they were ca- like captured by like the Spanish pirate, mm-hmm. and he was so taken with this little baby that had like you know red hair and green eyes yep. that he named her Oceanborn Mary. Yes, and he said that uh, something either like. Uh, if you name the child after my mother, I'll let you go. Hence, her name became Mary. Okay. And in other versions, it's like, uh, name the child after my mother and promise me her hand in marriage. And then years, years later, the pirate comes back to yeah. wed Mary. Yeah, they got married. Yeah, and that's that's apparently uh, mostly folklore. Not yeah. actually a thing, but interesting nonetheless. It's still, yeah, a fun cool story. Tale. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Who doesn't love pirates? Um. So, yeah, like I said, like they say that Mary haunts the house and that she's a protective spirit of the house to the people who live there. Um, the other was the Cocheco Falls Millworks, hmm. which I thought would have been fun because people who go there now can still hear the sounds of the mill equipment, even though it's not there. Ooh, uh, I love haunting stuff like that. Yeah, it's just weird because it's like, like an, an echo. echo of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those were like the other ones that I really wanted to do. There was another one that I initially really wanted as well, which was the Murray Hall um, haunting. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I might just be thinking of Murray Hill, you, that section in New York City. <laughs> I, no, I think you probably know this one, too, because uh, it was a building that apparently burnt down in 1624 during a um, town-wide Halloween party, killing about 70 people. Oh, wow. But the story seemed really suspect to me because Americans didn't really celebrate Halloween until the early 1900s. It really wasn't a thing before that. So back in the early 1600s, who would have been celebrating Halloween? Unless you have a shit ton of like witches, Irish or Welsh immigrants that are going to be there celebrating Samhain. But probably not happening. So it just it didn't ring true to me. So I didn't want to do it. That's fair. My sources for this week were Notchland.com, which is the inn's website. Wikipedia I used for the info of the town and surrounding area, but I didn't really find much else on Wikipedia. Hitrecord.org, CelebrateBoston.com, WhiteMountainHistory.org was a big help. Uh, ConwayDailySun.com, AllStays.com, WikiWan.com, and TripAdvisor.com. Cool. Uh, yeah, I would I would stay there with you. I will go to the murder mystery train ride. Oh, hell yeah. Just no naps. No naps, except maybe on the train ride if we get bored. Fair. That sounds like some solid napping. But I don't think that we'd get bored because it sounds freaking awesome. We got to figure out who done it. I've never been on a train, so I really want to go really? on a train. 
And then also murder mystery. Come on. I wonder what kind of train it is. If it's like a more modern train or if it's like. Um, in my head, it's not a modern train. Like a coal train. Yeah. I went on a coal train in Dollywood. Oh, cool. They have It's like still coal powered and you realize how dirty those things are. Oh, really? Because if you like. <laughs> oh, yeah. True. Like the dust would get everywhere. Yeah. It's interesting. So like you, it takes you like around like the park because it used to be a much older park and there's sections of it that aren't in use but this train kind of goes up like the mountain kind of and back down and um as you're riding in it's lovely and scenic but if you like lean out of the cart you just get like a face of like coal soot oh no (laughs) oh yeah don't do that what state is dollywood in again tennessee tennessee okay so it's right outside tennessee i am going to dollywood yeah it's right outside knoxville so it's in northern tennessee so it's a little bit um if you're coming from the north it's a little bit quicker to get to than say like nashville or memphis yeah so, yeah. yeah. Well, that is my story for the week. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it was shorter than I had wanted it to be, but still fun. Sometimes a good story. It's not about how long it is. It's about, you know, how good it is, I guess, or how entertaining. Exactly. So I can appreciate that. It's not the size of the boat. It's the motion in the ocean is what you're trying to say here. It's not the size of the n- hammer. It's the nail you're tossing it out. <laughs> is that, is All that right? A, is I think that... that's another phrase, but <laughs> I don't know. Um well, guys, I guess that's it for today. So if you would like to visit our website, you can go to roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Well, great. and blanking on stuff. Um, you can that's also, my job, Eden. Yeah, right? I know. I'm, I'm supposed to forget all of our contact information. <laughs> you can also email us with any comments, questions, concerns, um, personal stories, topics just to you, say hi. Yeah, topics you want us to cover, something that you want to share with us, even if just to say hi. Yeah, pictures of your dogs, cats, birds, iguanas that fall from trees in Florida, <laughs> um, any of that stuff. Uh, you can do that at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you want to keep up with us on social media, you can do that by following us on Facebook or Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. Or you can catch us maybe possibly tweeting at some point in the near future once we get through all of our notifications on about Twitter. Chrissy about Chrissy Teigen on <laughs> Twitter at Roadside Horror. Uh, I'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design for our lovely logo and E. Massey for our wonderful intro and outro music. And stay tuned um, soon. Check us on social media, stuff like that, because we might be having a live show coming up. I don't want to jinx us by saying that we definitely do, but we might have a live show coming up in the near future. Excitement. Yes. So until then, creep creep on, creeping on. on.